Jessie Gold saw some of the first signs of her depression back when she was in college. We kind of put the bar at, well, I'm getting good grades, so I'm fine. I'm still seeing friends, so I'm fine. And I was very much that kind of person for a long time until really I kind of blew it off until I couldn't anymore. And some friends and some family members were like, you need to go talk to someone about this. And I saw a therapist for the first time in college my junior year. Ultimately, Jesse was able to get help, but says the experience of finding treatment simply wasn't easy. And that's what motivated her to become a psychiatrist, an assistant professor at Washington University in St. Louis. Like, I want to be a safe space for people to get help where they don't feel like that experience. Like, a lot of people are asking for help for the first time in college, and I don't want them to be, like, scared to do it. I don't want them to have an experience where they don't understand what's going on, and I don't want them to feel like, for some reason, they did it wrong. Today, she's in her mid-30s, and Jessie is busy helping her students and her patients with some of the same struggles she experienced in her own life. And she's been really open about the journey. But during the pandemic, something happened. Dr. Gold says she started to do some reflecting and realized there's one part of her therapy journey she's never been as open about. I've been on medication for years at this point. No changes, same meds, they work for me. I haven't really had an episode of depression in years. Like, I don't understand why I'm hiding that in some capacity. Now, what Jesse did next was honestly a little bit meta because she took the anxieties about being treated for anxiety to her own therapist. So I talked to my therapist about it for a while, and she was kind of like, you know, what does medication mean to you? And I was like, well, I give medicine to everybody all the time. It's the same as taking medicine for blood pressure. What do you mean by what does medicine mean to me? And she was like, no, but for you, not for other people. When I thought about it deep down, what I thought was like, if I'm on medicine and people know I'm on medicine, that will mean to them at some point I was sicker or at some point, maybe I'm not as good of a doctor as I should be. My therapist actually told me she took medication too and said, did that make you think any differently about me? And I said, absolutely not. And she was like, see, it doesn't make you any worse at your job or it doesn't make you change your mind about someone you already think is a good doctor or professional. Here's the reason I wanted to start with this today. I think Jesse's story is relatable for a lot of reasons. We've come so far when it comes to talking about mental health, but let's be honest here, there's still a lot of stigma out there. After all, even a psychiatrist like Jessie was reluctant to talk about her medications. And at the same time now, rates of depression are rising. You can see where I'm going with this. Nearly one in five Americans has been diagnosed with depression at some point in their lives. And now, according to most recent CDC health statistics, more than one in eight Americans report taking an antidepressant drug. But the story I'm telling you today is even more complicated than that. Because while antidepressants can be lifesavers for some people, the other truth is they don't work so well for others if they work at all. And for me, as a brain scientist, it raises a fundamental question. What exactly is going on in our brains when we are depressed? And along those lines, why do certain treatments like antidepressants help some people like Jesse, but not as much with others? And then there's a lot of discussion about new treatments on the horizon, psychedelics, for example. So today we're going to explore all of this, the inner workings of the depressed brain. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This is Chasing Life.
You know, as we started to research this episode, one thing really became clear to all of us. There's a lot we don't know about depression. Despite how common it is, we still don't know exactly what causes it, and we don't know how treatments, including antidepressants, actually work. And there's also a lot of debate, controversy, sometimes even misinformation, when we do talk about the best way to treat depression. So when it came to this topic, I knew I wanted to turn to someone I could trust. I'm Charles Raison. I'm a doctor. I'm a psychiatrist. I carry a title of Professor of Human Ecology and Psychiatry at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. But I do some other interesting things. I am the Director of Clinical Translational Research for an entity called USONA Institute, which is a nonprofit medical research organization that's developing psilocybin as a potential treatment for depression. Charles and I go way back. He used to be a mental health contributor at CNN. He's a really trusted voice in this field for me and for so many others. And I'll tell you this personally, I would sometimes call Charles after covering a particularly tough assignment, being in a war zone, covering a natural disaster. Those were tough times, and sometimes I'd ask his advice in terms of how to care for my own mental health. So I decided I wanted to share some of his wisdom with all of you. I wanted to turn to him to talk about these topics, and right off the bat, Charles said something that really surprised me, that the very origins of depression could actually go back to our evolutionary drive to survive. Depression could serve a purpose. I actually think depression evolved as a way of helping us cope with adversity, even though it's very painful. I, I don't endorse depression as a good thing, but that doesn't mean that it's not always unhelpful. So, you know, a lot of the work that we did at Emory back in the days when you and I were working together was looking at inflammation and depression. And there's some really pretty interesting evidence that depression caused by inflammation across evolutionary time might have helped humans survive infection, right? And there's some interesting data that, at least in certain contexts, depression may actually help people sort of recalibrate how they're dealing with their lives, how they're dealing with other people, and, and begin to sort of take more productive pathways. But, you know, if we think about it, that, that's thinking about it sort of like an adaptation. You know, one of the interesting right. questions is, why is depression so common if it's so maladaptive? And I think the answer is that, um, like a lot of adaptations, like the immune system, uh, it can be, you know, it can, it can overshoot. And when it overshoots, it can really cause problems. And then I think a lot of things ca may cause us depression now in the modern world that we just didn't evolve to cope with. So, so how does someone know then that they should, should try and make a visit with someone like you? If you're feeling, you know, unremittingly down, if you've lost interest in life, if your sleep and your appetite are altered, if you feel hopeless, if you are having thoughts of hurting yourself, these sorts of things, um, that's what depression is, right? And people have different combinations of them, but that's what it is. You need to come see somebody like me when those symptoms are interfering with your life. Uh, that's, the, I think, the simple answer, right? And especially you need to come and see me if those symptoms have been going on for a while. You know, if, if something bad happens in your life and you have those symptoms for a couple of few weeks, I think people like me now increasingly think, you know, let's, let's watch and see if it resolves rather than immediately pull out a pill. But, you know, if you say, oh, I've been like this for two or three months, yeah, it's time to go see a doctor or to go see a clinician and get help. One of the things that we're really focused on in the podcast is trying to understand what is happening in the brain during various conditions of life. If you were to do a scan of the brain and you pick the scan, a PET scan or MRI scan, functional MRI scan, and someone who is depressed, 
could you see depression? With an MRI scan, no. Just just looking at the brain, no. No, you, just the structure of the brain would not tell you that. But if you looked at the function of the brain with an fMRI, let's say, could I put you in it, look at it, and say, oh, my God, Sanjay, you're depressed? No. No, I, I couldn't do that. If you give me 40 people who are depressed and 40 people who are not depressed, and I do certain things in the scanner, on average, the depressed people's brains look different. Mm-hmm to some degree. But that doesn't always pan out across studies also. For instance, if you if you give me a, a group of depressed people, there are several studies that have shown that if I put the, the depressed folks in a scanner and I show them pictures of faces, their, their brain is less likely to notice happy faces and more likely to notice scary, angry, sad faces. And they get more of an activation in an area called the amygdala down deep in the brain, as you know, which is activated by danger and threat. And there are some, there's some older work by a woman named Yvette Chalene showing that if you treat people with an antidepressant, their brains, that overshoot of the amygdala calms down and they start looking more like folks that aren't depressed. So this is it though, right? There's nothing that's anywhere near like a brain test for depression. Is that a goal? I mean, or is that, is that a lark to try and say one day we could objectively measure depression or is the very nature of what we're talking about something that is immeasurable? Mm. Well, it's sort of interesting. Again, it's, it depends what kind of thing depression turns out to be. You know, it, it, one possibility is that it'd be a little bit like trying to measure something like dropsy. Remember, dropsy was this disease back in the 19th century, water on the lungs, you know. So, but water on the lungs turns out to be, could be your heart failure, it could be pneumonia, it could be cancer. There's different reasons to produce those symptoms, right? So will we ever find a test for diagnosing depression? No, uh-uh, because depression is like dropsy. It, it's it's a cloud. Uh, it's a probabilistic cloud. It's not a specific sort of mechanistic neurobiological disorder. The problem is it's, it has to do with, to get fancy, kind of the ontological status of depression. Depression is not a single thing that's going to yield itself to a single test. So we got to either break depression down into its component parts, if we could ever do that, or we need to think differently about depression. You know, one of the things that I think really sort of inspires a conversation like this is that it is seemingly so common. I mean, nearly one in five adults diagnosed with depression at some point in their lives. That number seems to be rising. First of all, just broadly speaking, how would you characterize the state of mental health in the United States right now? Uh, yeah. So <laughs> you've been asking me all these questions, I don't, and I, I've kind of been equivocating. This is an easy one. Uh, it's bad. It's bad. Oh, you know, I mean, uh, there is just no doubt that depression and anxiety and suicide and substance abuse have been on the rise in the United States. They've been on the rise in the United States for probably 20, 25 years, maybe longer, but they've really been on the rise over the last 10 years. And the data are really consistent. You know, the rise is not equal amongst all age groups. The, The people that are really suffering are young people. So people between the ages of like 15 and 35, that's where you see this really, really disturbing increase. So something's going on in America that is is really counterproductive to the emotional well-being, especially of young people. Not every country in the world is seeing this, but it's pretty common in industrialized societies that that whatever we're doing in this sort of zeitgeist that we're in right now may be good for productivity, but it's not good for our emotional well-being. There is always this, this question, are we more aware and able to identify depression? Or 
is it true that the numbers are really going up? This is a good point. It's a complex question. They're going up, meaning that if you ask Americans the same questionnaire, they w- the scores are rising. Now, does that mean that they're actually feeling more miserable or does it mean that they're aware that they're feeling more miserable? But I think most of us think that people really are, in fact, more anxious and more depressed. And so, yeah, uh, you know, again, you see this just the same scales, these large scale sort of surveys of American populace. And, you know, the numbers are kind of creeping up. So, yeah, I, I'm one of these people that thinks it's a real effect. One thing, though, that's clear um, is that parallel to that, rates of the use of antidepressants in, in, in the United States have, have you know, skyrocketed over the last 20 years, right in line with the increase in rates of depression and suicide. So, you know, at the very least, it suggests that something's not working right, you know? It's a thorny and frightening problem. That, that, that seems to be a, a, a big topic of discussion lately, that, as you mentioned, um, in the United States, rates of depression, uh, suicidal behavior, anxiety have all gone up. Um, interestingly, even before the pandemic, life expectancy in the United States had gone down, and one of the top drivers of premature death was suicide. At the same time, we're taking more drugs, including antidepressants, than ever before. So despite the fact that we have higher rates of depression, we take more medications, the numbers just keep getting worse. If someone were to sort of piece that together, you know, visit from another planet and say, hey, what's going on here? That would not make sense. Yes. So this is the the question of the use of antidepressants, which are the first line treatment for depression in the United States, is incredibly complex. I always, whenever I start with this, I always start by saying, you know, anybody that's worked as a psychiatrist or in mental health knows that these agents, you know, standard antidepressants have, man, they are lifesavers for some folks. But, but as we've gone along in the last 20 years, we've had to metabolize as a field a number of very hard truths about uh, antidepressants and their effectiveness. One hard truth, and the most obvious one, is that they don't work nearly as well as we thought they did 30 years ago. And in fact, they probably, if I, it, give me a whole group of depressed people and, and let me start an antidepressant and have them take it every day, probably 30% max are going to get a full response and probably another 20%, 25% are going to feel better. And there's going to be a bunch of people that really don't get much benefit. Now, that's a huge problem. And studies, we now know from studies that, you know, so you didn't, first one didn't work, so we're going to try a second one. Okay, but by the time you're doing third and fourth, your chances of responding go down, 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 right? So that it's like there's a group of people that are antidepressant responsive. And then there's a lot of people that aren't really very antidepressant responsive. And that's a problem. And, you know, there, there is some evidence, not much talked about, that at least sometimes antidepressants might set you up for having more depression if you decide oh. to stop them. And that is something to worry about. And, uh, you know, I, I talk about this often just because it, the, the data are not conclusive, but they're, they're concerning, right? It really highlights the fact that, you know, it's a good thing we have treatments, but man, we need to keep looking for new treatments for these things because there's a lot of room for improvement. Is depression a chemical imbalance? 
not the way that it's meant colloquially, uh, meaning that, you know, I, I can't, you know, look into your brain and like a dipstick and measure your serotonin or your norepinephrine. No, in fact, the vast majority of people with depression don't have, uh, you know, obvious measurable abnormalities in any brain chemicals. Nowadays, I think many of us think that if there is a brain thing that we can understand, it probably has to do more with how the brain areas talk to each other. So no, you know, I, I think that it's becoming increasingly clear that these older simple ideas of chemical imbalance, they don't fit the data very well. Yeah, it's 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 a nice narrative, right? I think again, and we we like narratives. We like to hear that your cholesterol's too high and that's gonna cause you to have heart disease. Your serotonin's too low, so we'll give you an SSRI, a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, just to keep your serotonin around longer, and that should help. But um it, it's interesting. I, you know, on one hand, uh, I, I was reading an article that said you can give aspirin for pain and that should help your pain, but that doesn't mean you're quote unquote aspirin deficient. You can give serotonin or you can create more serotonin for your brain. Doesn't necessarily mean you're serotonin deficient, even if that serotonin does help alleviate your symptoms of depression. And I know that sounds like maybe talking in circles, but I think it makes the point that you're making, which is it's very hard to call this a chemical imbalance. Even if a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, SSRI, works, it doesn't necessarily mean that there was a chemical imbalance. It meant that getting more serotonin actually just made you feel better. Uh, that's right. But there's an implication of that, which is that, yeah, antidepressants are not doing something natural. So they're not, you know, it's not that your serotonin is low, so we're just going to fill your tank. It's that if you give people an agent that sort of pushes serotonin signaling in the brain for some group of depressed people, it makes them feel better. But that antidepressant is pushing on the brain to make them have that benefit, which again is why when people take away the antidepressant, rates of relapse are probably so high because the brain was needing that 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 sort of you know push of the medication. Uh, the medication was not restoring some sort of pre-existing balance that was lost. It's doing something novel um, to make the person feel better. Look, it's all still pretty mysterious in reality. But I've got to say, I do like the way Charles approaches all of this. It's important to acknowledge that for some people, like Jesse, who you heard from earlier, antidepressants not only work, but they're a lifeline. But at the same time, there is data to show it's definitely not a one-size-fits-all treatment, and we're not even entirely sure why or how they even work. That's why after the break, Dr. Raisan and I are going to talk about other options, newer options on the horizon, including psychedelics. They are probably the most interesting development in the treatment of mood and anxiety and post-traumatic stress disorder, probably alcohol and drug abuse that I've seen in the 40 wow. years, the 30, 40 years that I've been a psychiatrist. That's, that's a significant statement coming from you. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, the, it's quite remarkable. We're going to talk about the future of depression treatment in just a moment. But, you know, before we go, a reminder. If you or someone you love is struggling there's help available for you right now. You can call the National Suicide and Crisis Lifeline anytime, 988. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. 
Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. One of the things that's come up quite a bit is psychedelics, and this is an area of interest of, of yours as well. You know, I got to say, it's it's pretty compelling, and and I'm I'm pretty conservative on these things, I, even on cannabis. It took me a while to sort of fully appreciate, which I do now, the medical benefits that cannabis can offer for certain things. What about psychedelics? You're a well-regarded, well-known psychiatrist in in this country. I listen to you. You're the guy I go to. What do you think about psychedelics and depression? <laughs> You've come to the right place, actually. Um, because, you know, this is what I spend much of my life doing this, these days, is trying to understand, do psychedelics work? What do they work for? And then how do they work? And so one of the, the hats I wear is directing research for a kind of very novel uh, medical research organization called USONA Institute, which is one of the entities in the world that's working to get FDA approval for psilocybin, which is a psychedelic, as a treatment for major depression. And uh, this is mushrooms. It's the psychedelic substance in mushrooms. We produce the psilocybin, as do other commercial entities. We produce it. So it's a synthesized substance, yes. but it's based on yes. what's in mushrooms. Exactly. It's the same thing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, we just did a hundred. We just did this hundred and four person study with people who were really depressed. Gave them a single high dose of psilocybin with psychosocial support huge improvement in their depression, you know, one dose. And the study lasted for six weeks. At the end of six weeks, uh, you know, the, the, a, a lot of the folks that were really depressed were significantly better with the psilocybin. And this has now been shown over and over again. You know, um, there are now just a handful, a growing handful of studies, some of them like ours, fairly large, showing that a single high dose of psilocybin produces a very rapid, very very robust and sustainable antidepressant effect. So yeah, I mean, I think, you know, of, of I'm one of these people that thinks that although these agents are going to have their challenges, of which there are many, and they're going to have their risks, they are probably the most interesting development in the treatment of mood and anxiety and post-traumatic stress disorder and probably alcohol and drug abuse that I've seen in the 40 years, the 30, 40 years wow. that I've been a psychiatrist. That's, that's a significant statement coming from you. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, it's quite remarkable. What do psychedelics do in the brain that causes such a benefit when it comes to depression? Yeah, we don't fully know. But, you know, it's interesting. The most consistently observed predictor of response is not, at this point, a brain measure. It's actually a behavioral measure. So, you know, hmm. psychedelics are very different. You know, let's Prozac, Paxil, whatever, the SSRIs. You know, you're depressed, you start taking them, and maybe you feel a little bit weird because they have side effects. And if they work, you know, you feel better in a couple of weeks, but you don't know why you feel better. It's not like you had a eureka, aha moment. Psychedelics are totally different, though. You know, so in our studies, you come in, I give you a 25 milligram dose of psilocybin. Almost everybody is now going to have a very intense psychedelic experience. And those experiences tend not to be random. They tend to have characteristics that if those characteristics occur, 
people are going to be undepressed afterwards. And so, for instance, one of the things that psychedelics tend to do is they induce these things called mystical experiences, which are really these states where people feel much more deeply connected than they had previously to other things, to the universe, to God, to other people. They have this feeling that their lives are meaningful in ways that they didn't realize before, and this sort of fills them often with this sense of joy. They're like, wow, I, I am meaningfully part of something larger that matters, that's going someplace good. That When that happens, it, during the psychedelic experience, after you take the drug, the more that happens, the more likely you are to be undepressed six weeks later, six months later. And then the other thing that psychedelics do is quite interesting, is that they tend to bring people face-to-face -face with the issues that they're dealing with. So one of the things we know about depression is when you're depressed, you tend to avoid things that are very painful. And you get depressed because you avoid things that are very painful. Psychedelics interrupt that process, you know. So if you're struggling, if you're depressed because you're feeling bad about yourself because of, of something, psychedelics will very often put put that something right in front of your face. And this can be very, very difficult for people. And so many people in our studies that have depression will really have a rough go during the psychedelic experience. They'll cry. They, 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 it's just emotionally very powerful. Uh, there's no escape. You know, it's not like I can say, oh, I'm just going to forget about it. If that happens to you, and if you, if you deal with it, if you face the problem, if you feel like you've either faced it in a way that's going to let you make a change or faced it in a way that's going to let you accept something that you cannot change, in the field, it's called an emotional breakthrough. And if that happens, people are also much less likely to be depressed and anxious like weeks and weeks later. So that's the thing we know about these agents at this point is that it seems like there's something, it's more like psychotherapy in that regard, right? And this is where sometimes people say it's like a year of psychotherapy in a day. You just, it recalibrates how you see your life. This eureka moment Dr. Raisan is describing highlights, I think, a key difference in the way traditional SSRIs work versus psychedelics in terms of treating depression. Compared to SSRIs, psychedelics are going to work much faster, and they're going to appear to have longer-lasting effects. That's because they seem to ignite this explosive neuroplastic response. Your brain just starts to light up all over the place, and it causes the brain to create these entirely new pathways, or at least unobstruct existing pathways, making these connections between parts of the brain that normally don't communicate much. For example, he said the feelings we keep buried away in the emotional centers of the brain, they kind of suddenly pop into conscious awareness. Think about that. You keep these things buried away. You take this psychedelic, according to Dr. Raisan, and all of a sudden, those things that were inhibited, that were buried, pop into our conscious awareness. Another key difference, Dr. Raisan said, is that unlike an antidepressant pill that you have to take every day, Psychedelics appear, and I want to be careful here because this is still new science, but psychedelics appear to set something in motion in our brains that somehow stays in motion. It becomes self-sustaining, so you don't have to take them frequently, certainly not every day. Charles referred to SSRIs, again, these selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, these antidepressants. He referred to them as a gas grill that will go out if you don't keep giving it gas. Psychedelics, he said, are more like a campfire. Once you light it, it burns for a while. Now look, again, these findings are promising, but there's still a lot we don't know about how psychedelics treat depression, just like we don't know how antidepressants really work. 
There's also the question that a lot of you are probably immediately asking about the federal regulations. So, you know, we and everybody else in the space working to get FDA approval is synthesizing these agents to this, you know, insane purity that you have to do for the Food and Drug Administration. And we're doing the kind of studies that if they're positive, traditionally cause the FDA to say, okay, we're going to give you approval to use this medicine. Um, I, I think it's very clear that because psychedelics induce these very powerful, acute, you know, psychedelic, what are colloquially called trips, they are never going to be agents that you take at home on a Saturday morning, right? That almost certainly they will be administered in a clinical setting where there's safety. They will be administered with people that are in the room with you to, in case you really start struggling. So these are, but these are hurdles, you know, there's, there's some real challenges there. I remember back when I was a medical student, there were some papers that were actually written about hypothermia and actually patients who are in acute crisis, mental uh, health crisis, to actually use hypothermia. What you've written about is the effectiveness of, of heat therapy. Is this something that can work? Oh, yes. Hyperthermia. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Oh, yes. I, I. This is another thing that I, you know, I often tell people I spend my research life just trying to re, kind of re, re, retread ancient practices. You know, psychedelic. we're talking about psychedelics. They've been around for thousands of years. Heat, you know, heat has been a healing modality in almost every culture for millennia. You know, all of Native Americans and all sweat lodges and the baths in Asia and, you know. So we've known for a long time that heat has beneficial properties. Um, cold, though, probably does too. And I've got a colleague uh, out in Colorado, Christopher Lowry, who's shown that in animal models, cold and heat have very similar signaling capacities on the brain. And now um, some of my colleagues have done studies showing that if you're depressed, that I can put you in a machine of one sort or other that will elevate your body temperature. We like to get people up to about 101.3 Fahrenheit, which is 38.5 centigrade. It's hot. You're pouring sweat. It's really hot. But if I do that, um, and if I do that in a group of depressed people, very reliably, their their depression scores drop by about half. Some people, mm. some people get much better than that, right? And and the, the the biggest study that we've done, we gave people a single treatment, their scores dropped considerably, and uh, they stayed down, they stayed improved for six weeks. So this is another one of these sort of more ancient ways of doing things that I think can be you know kind of spruced up and be another sort of option for folks. But, you know, people now, of course, they ask me about it because this is, you know, we've really shown there seems to be something here. And what I tell people is, you know, if you go to the sauna and you feel better, um, you know, if you can stand doing it by yourself, just a regular old rectal thermometer, put yourself in the heat and, and monitor your body temperature a couple of times, see what it feels like to get up to about 101.3 and then, and then try to do it because we, we know, we look at people we, in our studies very carefully and it, there's a dose response relationship. You do get more of an antidepressant response at higher temperatures, right? So it really is worth, I, frankly, it's worth doing. I, I do this all the time. I, I, Oh yeah, I've got a steam shower, and I I use it every day. It, for me, it's really uh, uh, it's it's huge. When you listen to Charles and other psychiatrists talking about the new treatments on the horizon for depression, you know you you can't help but realize that what was old can be new again. We're talking about plants. We're talking about heat. We're talking about ancient traditions. And in some ways, I think that should make you feel a little bit more hopeful. Don't get me wrong. The statistics, the rising rates of depression that we talked about, that is real. 
That is something we have to pay attention to. And right now, it feels like the world around us is pretty inflamed. But at the same time, as Charles points out, at this point in history, there are more treatments for depression than ever before. And there are many more promising treatments on the way. But what I like about psychedelics and what I like about hyperthermia is they share something in common that I think is a potential path forward as we think about novel treatments for depression, which is this. Um, Unlike a pill that you take every day that the brain then accommodates to and begins to kind of push against, um, psychedelics and hyperthermia, but especially psychedelics, seem to set, they're, they're, they're drugs, they're very powerful drugs. They set, they come from the outside, they set something in motion, but then they're gone. And whatever they've set in motion stays in motion. And it becomes something that becomes sort of self-sustaining within the mind-body-brain complex. It requires oxygen and things from the environment, like everything does, but it has a self-sustaining life of its own. You know, you, you, psychedelics are like the match. They seem to light something, and then the fire burns for a while. And I think that metaphor is one that we should take more seriously in terms of trying to identify new treatments. That makes a lot of sense. Oh, that'll stick with me for sure. Um, let, let me just ask you uh, in closing, I'm very diligent about exercise. I know exercise can help new brain connections, uh, more BDNF, it's called, brain-derived neurotrophic factor. I, I meditate every day now. I know that can help with feelings of stress and anxiety. I'm really diligent about sleep. As busy as you and I both are, my guess is you're diligent about sleep as well. Uh, You told me just now you also do steam showers to try and raise your body temperature. But I have a terrible history of a family history of heart disease. So I do all these things to ward that off. To prevent mental illness, mental health problems later in life, what should I be doing? What, what, What do you do? Well, all the above. So everything you said is those are all fantastic things, right? So if I had a short list, you've just named a bunch of the short list. The thing that I do in addition to that, that I found very, very helpful is to work on developing an attitude of, 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 of thankfulness for the fact that I exist, <laughs> thankfulness for the people in my life, uh, this sort of do, trying to foster a sort of, I'm looking out the window and it's a beautiful autumn day up here in Wisconsin, trying to foster this sense of wonder that in this crazy, amazing universe, we're here and we're conscious. I have this idea that there are certain mental states that make depression impossible. Grief is possible in those states, but not depression. It's just, it's very hard to get to those states. Um, but, you know, we talk about psychedelics. Psychedelics often put people in those states, at least briefly. So I, I that's the other thing I do is I really try to foster that, that sense of kind of wonder and gratitude. Um, that, for me, helps a lot. That and the steam showers, they, 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 they help me a great deal. <laughs> Steamy showers and gratitude. What I like about these two parting pieces of advice from Dr. Raisan is that these are small things anyone can try. And just a reminder, of course, that this isn't going to help with all kinds of depression. If you or someone you love is seriously struggling, there can be help available for you. You can call the National Suicide and Crisis Lifeline anytime, 988. Also, we'd like to hear from you. Give us a call. What are some tips that have helped you care for your mental health? Give us a call, 470-396-0832. Your message could help others, could be featured on an upcoming episode of the podcast. Plus, next week, 
we're going to dive into the world of dating apps or introducing apps, as they are now called. How have they changed how we find love? And what is all that swiping doing to your brain? The answers might surprise you. The brain is built to love. And all these dating sites, introducing sites, are built for only one thing, introduce you to people so that you can then pick up the ball <laughs> and, and, uh, and move it down the road. That's next time on Chasing Life. Thanks for listening. Chasing Life is a production of CNN Audio. Our podcast is produced by Aaron Mathewson, Madeline Thompson, David Rind, and Grace Walker. Our senior producer and showrunner is Felicia Patinkin. Andrea Kane is our medical writer, and Tommy Bazarian is our engineer. Dan DeJula is our technical director, and the executive producer of CNN Audio is Steve Lichtai. Special thanks to Ben Tinker, Amanda Seeley, and Nadia Kunang of CNN Health.